0: This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Land, Sea, and Sky. Since 1940, birders have turned to the optics experts at Land, Sea, and Sky to purchase just the right pair of binoculars for their birding adventures. The shop has hundreds of binoculars and spotting scopes in stock, an industry-leading 90-day return policy, and experienced staff to lend you a helping hand. Stop by their shop in Houston or visit them anytime at landseaskyco.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. Thanks for joining me. I am excited. It is September. Finally, it is fall. Meteorologically speaking, the month for pastor and migration, my favorite time of year. I will argue to the death that fall migration is superior to spring migration for many reasons, not least of which that it is longer. The weather is often more pleasant. I love those days right after a cold front, when there's that little bit of bite in the air and the birds are all over the place. I, I admit that this is you know, probably a little bit of an East Coast bias. Pastor migration is not quite as heavy in the Western part of the continent. But fall, September, it seems especially is a great time for birding in the West as well with the potential for really cool things. I think across the continent, we are all sharing in this amazing time of year. You know, I probably shared these sentiments last year too, now that I think about it. I won't apologize feel that strongly about autumn birding. This autumn, or perhaps more accurately, the late summer, also saw the annual eBird taxonomic review. And there was a wrinkle this time. Typically, those taxonomic updates revolve around the changes made by the AOS, the American Ornithological Society Classification Committee. In the past, eBird, which is Clements Taxonomy, James Clements, who turned over the maintenance of his list to Cornell when he passed away several years ago, which is why they use it, but this time the mexican duck proposal which is a very exciting very exciting proposal for a not terribly exciting bird which was not accepted by the AOS Nick Block and I talked about this earlier this year was accepted by ebird so right right now there is a difference between the ABA list and your ebird list which is weird it's worth Noting, of course, that this is not the first time that eBird has diverged from the AOS. There are some differences with regards to taxonomic order. Those are not generally things that people notice too, too often. But this was the first time that a, a split was accepted by one and not the other. And I'm not exactly sure what this means. We birders of the U.S. and Canada have actually been pretty fortunate that there is so much taxonomic agreement uh, I'm not sure what this will do going forward. Whether we at the ABA will eventually have to make a choice between the AOS and eBird—it's you know sort of something that we've talked about abstractly in house. We will have to see what it means uh, in the future. If the Mexican duck is an anomaly or the start of the great North American birding schism, in that case, we can probably hold out until eBird nails the 95 splits to the door of the AOS offices. That's right. That's a Reformation joke, you're welcome. On the show today, I'm going to circle back to a question that was asked of us six weeks ago. Quinn Llewellyn, I have not forgotten you. I have some tips we wish we knew when we started at the end of the show. But first, Keith Barnes is a photographer and a birder, one of the co-founders of the bird tour company Tropical Birding. We're gonna talk cameras and birding photo tips and a little bit about Thailand Keith is leading the ABA's birding-with-a-camera tour to Thailand early next year. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird focus for the end of August very... Little beginning of September. Summer may have been on the slow side with a few notable exceptions (laughs) great black hawk but fall is creeping in with some excellent birds across the ABA area especially wading birds from the south the most exceptional of which at least so far this year was a reddish egret in Bruce County Ontario which was a provincial first record given the incredible eruption of spoonbills and wood storks this summer it makes sense that other species might be included uh, albeit in smaller numbers. And it is to roseate spoonbills that we turn now. The bird from Quebec I talked about last time turned out only to be the vanguard of the spoonbill invasion in the north. Both Maine and Minnesota added roseate spoonbill to their respective state lists for the first time this week, the former in Piscataquis County and the latter in Hennepin County. They weren't the only southern birds in the north, as perching birds got into the action as well. In Nova Scotia, a striking male hooded oriole was found on Seal Island, which was a provincial first. In Washington, a painted red star was found in the rarity factory that is Clallam County. That was a state first as well. And in Tennessee, a weird grackle near Nashville that was ultimately identified as a boat tailed grackle was a first for that state. That bird was lacking its eponymous tail, which made it sort of funky looking, unfortunately, but uh, you know, you takes what you gets. This was a short roundup of the notable rarities of the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, please check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups ABA Rare or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Birders in North America are increasingly keen to combine the somewhat separate skills of birding and photography, but around the rest of the world, birding is pretty much synonymous with photography to the point that sometimes you don't even carry binoculars in the field. It seems strange to us, but it's the way things are to Keith Barnes. He's one of the founders of the bird tour company Tropical Birding, a South African expat now living in Taiwan, co-author of several field guides, and he's the architect of the ABA's Birding with a camera tour of Thailand that's going to be held early next year. He's with me now from Taiwan. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Keith.
1: Thanks, Nate. Looking forward to the chat.
0: So South Africa to to Taiwan is kind of an interesting journey. How did you end up in East Asia?
1: That's that's an interesting question. It came through music, believe it or not. I I was at the university as a student one day and checked out this rather odd advertisement for a... um, Set of CDs that were for sale. Called the lady up. Turned out she was from Taiwan. We ended up uh, having a lot more in common than music, and she's <laughs> my wife today. And uh, that's how I kind of got here. But uh, yeah, it's another story.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, is the, you're? I'm sure you're certainly involved in the birding community there in Taiwan. How are the the birding communities different in those places? I always think of you know South Africa having a very European North American kind of birding tradition. Uh, Is that how the birding community has grown in Asia?
1: Um, Nate, well, I I came to birding like I think most North American birders, at least those who entered the birding scene anything more than 10 years ago would have, which was we had a pair of binoculars and when we had enough money, we bought ourselves a a telescope. Mm -hmm. And the primary objective was to go out and observe birds in the wild and enjoy them, watch their behavior or get our kicks in a number of different ways. And slowly but surely, uh, in the last 10 years for sure, uh, photography has become a much bigger element. Yeah. But when I first came to Taiwan, which was nearly 20 years ago, it was rather fascinating. It was a very fledgling thing in those days. Uh, very few birders around. But the folks that were around were still very much looking at birds through a camera lens. And so you would go to a, a twitch, let's say, or a, a chase, let's say a rare bird pitched up, and you would just find lenses. Uh, hmm. You know, maybe maybe 50% of the people might have some kind of optics other than a camera. But the interesting thing is that the photographers were actually still excellent, skilled ID people mm-hmm. who were able to find and identify rarities. Uh, today, that's that's the way it still works, but it's much more popular. So maybe uh, 20 years ago, we would have gone to, a let's say, a good local Taipei bird and found maybe 10 people there. Today you'll go and see at least 60 to 100 folks wow uh, and they'll all be carrying cameras they'll all be doing the photography uh, but they're actually still very skilled birders who are able to find and uh you know identify birds
0: so. yeah huh that's really interesting and, and taiwan has you know wonderful like endemic birds as well is there is a is patch birding a big part of how they people go about it or is it really sort of looking for looking for rarities i'm sure you know being an island that's a that's a big part, too. Look,
1: I mean, I, th- I think I think what's happened is that you have a situation where most of the local folks have pretty much gone out, seen all the endemics, spent a lot of time with them, enjoyed them, photographed yeah. them. Of course, w- when you still go to these endemic stakeouts, you still will find many local birders there taking, I mean, who can get enough of a bird like a Mikado pheasant?
0: Right. Um,
1: right, right. So, so they're still out there enjoying it. But it is largely more a case of folks going out and finding and or chasing Rare birds and trying to photograph them and document them. Mm-hmm. I think Taiwan, for the size of the birding community, is one of the largest users of eBird, which is quite amazing. I was I was kind of blown away by how quickly and it kind of almost happened overnight. How folks took to eBird, local folks took to eBird and started using it extensively as a mechanism to both document uh, what they were finding as well as share it with other people. So. Uh, obviously, like other social media outlets, it's also very common for people to use, and everybody likes showing you the picture and having you go ooh ah. So, so if, you, <laughs> yeah. if you want an in- if you want an inroads with some locals, uh, you certainly make sure you appreciate what they're doing and, and how they they take photos and, and enjoy birding. It's a very different way to to enjoying birding. Um, like I said, I came I came to it through the sort of more conventional observational side of things. But like many, many people in the West, in the last 10 years or so, we certainly started using cameras a lot more. And cameras yeah. and photography has, has changed birding in many ways. I mean, these days, if you were to get a, a North American first, if you don't have photographic evidence for that, is there any chances of a rarities committee accepting that record? It would have I to don't be don't exceptional. So. Yeah.
0: And even then, even then it might not be enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd you you struggle to to get people to accept it.
0: How does photography fit into the way that you bird?
1: I would say that uh, I'm actually a naturalist at heart, and uh, I've always been somebody who, when when I go out birding for myself, will be interested in everything, whether it's a a bird, a frog, a mammal, a plant, an interesting plant, if I find any of those kinds of things, I really enjoy everything I see. And I'm still, first and foremost, a naturalist who goes out and, and enjoys seeing things. When the opportunity arises, if something's in a great position, yeah. I'm quick to whip out the camera and enjoy documenting it. And then, of course, sharing it with folks. Uh, obviously, you mentioned that I've written a couple of books. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of bleeds uh, into that somewhat because the more pictures you have of sub-adult plumages or juvenile right. plumages of things, the better it is. And it's actually – Taught me to reappreciate these sorts of things in in more detail. You know, when when you first start and you went out and you you sort of go and see, let's say uh, whatever a, a spot-backed weaver or something like that, you'd have a look at it, but maybe you wouldn't actually sit and look carefully at juvenile plumages and the right. molt and stuff like that. Whereas now, through the camera lens, I'm both documenting because I need it for these these publications we're doing, but I'm also looking more carefully at the plumages of these animals how they change and what they do yeah and i think with stuff like merlin and some of the uh things that cornell are doing that all feeds into that too you know because we now start getting plumages of birds in transitional plumage right and, yeah, Absolutely, and, and things like that so so i think photography brings a whole new element into into the idea and just appreciation of of birds in their natural habitats uh, because we look at things differently.
0: Yeah, Greg Neese told me a story about how he um, one time went out to a, a, a goal roost and just like took pictures of all the subadult adult goals in this roost. And then, you know, once you have those pictures, you can really take them back home and kind of linger over them and kind of really key in on some very, very subtle field marks that you may not always necessarily be able to see in the field or appreciate in the field. The, the rise of photography has really driven field ID in that way you're pushing those boundaries
1: yeah i think i think it's certainly an interesting interesting development for sure also i mean i'll, I'll be the first to admit that occasionally if there's a big gull roost or let's say just a mixed mm-hmm. flock of birds sitting on a beach somewhere and you're taking pictures sort of get them snooping through the pictures suddenly you'll find something and go Whoa, didn't <laughs> yeah that absolutely
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> you know and uh, and and so yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that photography sort of lends that kind of documentary evidence to things, too. You can go back, add that to your e tolls if you were down on the beach that day. Right. So it also factors into the whole science and citizen science that we're doing mm-hmm. and how we, we gather that And also counts, you know. You're sitting there on the on the beach and you're not sure how many individuals there yeah. are, that are moving around. But flock takes off, boom. You get a flight photograph yeah. and you can you go can... back and you can say, hey, there were 37 sandlings in that flock. And you can be pretty sure you're spot on. Yeah. So, it's, it's definitely factors into lots of different ways people enjoy birds and birding. Some people like to go out with the cameras and just go and get nice, pretty pictures of birds, you know. Mm-hmm. And some folks, more folks who are still more interested in the traditional way birding works, can use it for counts. We can use it for just plain old documentation. Mm-hmm. We can use it for ID. You know, you've got a, a horrible bird in bat lit conditions, you're struggling, it's going dark. Okay, I'm gonna take a picture of this thing, the sun's going down, horrible light behind it, but then I'll take it back in Photoshop, pull it up, use a contrast adjustment mechanism. Out, yeah. Boom! I can idea. It's uh, uh, so yeah. There's lots of different ways we can use photography to enhance our hobbies.
0: A, a lot of birders, as we've we mentioned, carry around DSLRs and increasingly these these high quality mirrorless cameras as well uh, when they're birding. What sort of mistakes or bad habits do you see photographers making, or, or things that they're not doing that they should be doing that would you know instantly improve the photos that they take?
1: Okay. Well, if we're just looking at it from a um, sort of artistic perspective, let's say. Uh, one of the one of the biggest mistakes folks often make is just getting your body position right. Mm, mm-hmm. And so, folks will often stand up. Let's say you're on the Maggie Marsh boardwalk. In, in comes a warbler. You'll see so many people standing, pointing the camera down at an angle of forty five degrees, shooting the top <laughs> of the bird mm-hmm. and its back. And you know that makes that makes for a nice picture, and you can go and show your mates and stuff. And look, I know we can't all crouch like, uh, you know, crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of stuff. <laughs> right. but, but if you just dropped your body down a little bit so that you were at the bird's eye level, you would end up doing two things with the, with the photo. Number one, you'll get an eye-level view of the bird, which is immediately more pleasing to uh, any observer. And number two, you're much more likely to get a better angle on the background.
0: Yes. And
1: but what I mean is that you can set your depth of field so that you can blur the background and get what they call a nicer bokeh or a kind of blurry mystical effect in the background, which then makes the subject pop. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting, getting a subject in focus and working is kind of like the basic thing you would hope to do. But what makes a picture better is what you do with the background. And so you have to think as much about the background as you do about your subject. Of course, you want your subject a looking good, glint in the eye, maybe even doing something interesting. But if you then spend the rest of your energy working on how do I get the background to look really good, that'll turn around and give you a a great picture rather than just a good picture.
0: Oh, I'd say that's really interesting because I read an article about photography by Bill Schmoker, he's a Colorado-based bird photographer, mm-hmm. and he said the same thing that that was his first tip too. And I I, I took that tip out with me next time I was out and I was on the beach and I was, I were some sanderlings running by and I just like got down on the sand and we're shooting eye level at the sanderlings and I got some really nice photos. I was really happy with what, I mean, it's something I wouldn't have thought of necessarily.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the thing is a lot of people don't like getting down and dirty and that's kind of what you have to do in order to, to get those sorts of pictures. But if if you're looking to take your photography to the next step and you sort of done with those, uh, you know, I've got, I've got the bird in focus. I know how to get mm-hmm. those basic settings right on the camera. Then I think that's that's one of the next things you can do. The other thing, the other mistake that a lot of folks make is exposure compensation. Now, it sounds like a big fancy word. It's, it's not really. All it really means is that the camera, based on what setting it's on, will sort of adjust exactly how it's going to expose the picture. In other words, how much light it's going to let in and whether it's going to make the picture darker or lighter than what would appear to your own eye. So our eyes are automatically, because our pupils dilate, doing exposure compensation. When the light situation changes, your pupils change to adjust. And depending on what you're looking at, whether it's a bright object or a dark object, your pupils change to adjust almost immediately. Obviously the camera can't do that. So it does that through a mechanism where it measures the light and then adjusts accordingly. But for example, I think most of us will know these situations where we've got a white egret on a very, very dark pond. Mm-hmm. If we just if we just set our exposure at zero, what's going to happen is that your egret's going to get overexposed. Because the camera measures all the light coming into the camera. And then it says it's a very, very dark kind of background. And so I'm going to adjust the shutter speed to be lower and let more light in. But then you wind up overexposing your egret. Another typical situation is when a red tailed hawk flies against a light background and we lift the camera up and shoot it, and the sky's okay, but the bird is dark. Mm-hmm. And so those are your two extremes of what may happen. Now, exposure compensation is just a setting that you have on your camera to adjust either up or down the way that light works. And now you have to kind of do it as a. Um, as as a it's there's no real law or science to it Mm -hmm. but what it really means is is if you had a bird flying against the sky you would you would actually put your exposure compensation higher than zero it kind of sounds intuitive because you think there's more sky there but what you want to do is you actually want to increase it so that you expose for Mm -hmm. the bird correctly and then vice versa with uh, with the bird against a dark background. It's all getting mm. a bit technical, <laughs> but it's the kind of it's the kind of mistake that folks make a lot. And hopefully, on the yeah. birding with the camera time yeah. trip, yeah. we can sit down with folks and talk to them about these sorts of things that are a little bit hard to explain on a podcast. But but that's the kind of thing that would immediately improve most folks' photos. What's interesting is you mentioned earlier about the DSLR setup versus
0: the new Micro Four Thirds. Right. Yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah, what do you think about the difference between those?
1: Well, what what I find really neat about I find really
0: neat about the current setup with
1: the Micro Four Thirds is that they actually have digital viewfinders.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what what this means is that when you're actually looking through your viewfinder to find your subject, yeah, if you're making any mistakes with exposure compensation, You'll see it. those will be immediately apparent to you. You'll see, oh boy, uh, you know my egret's overexposed on the dark pond. I need to mm-hmm. pump that down a little bit. Or you'll see my uh, my hawk flying towards me. Is super dark. I need to bump it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of a neat development with the Micro Four Thirds setups. Um, I do think that Micro Four Thirds is going to be the future.
0: Yeah, they're certainly convenient to carry around. <laughs> well,
1: particularly for for us birders, you know, for folks who are who are going to be strictly bird photographers and sit right. in blinds all day long with tripods. Yes, I can see a, a 500 or 600 or 800 millimeter prime lens still being their go-to tools. Mm-hmm. But folks who want to carry around a telescope, binoculars, some yeah. sound recording equipment, a field guide, man, these big uh, big prime lenses are way too heavy. And to be honest, when I was at Maggie recently with you, some of the results that I was seeing from the guys with the micro four thirds really left me wondering yeah. well, what advantages are there to carrying around a big I
0: totally felt the same lens? way, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Look, I think the Micro Four Thirds sort of rush, the development rush is still happening. Mm -hmm. I do think things will improve in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. But I also think we know for a fact that Canon and Nikon are also developing these cameras as fast as they can. Because they understand that this is going to be the way folks like us, nature enthusiasts who are serious about photography but aren't serious enough to carry around a 20-pound camera all day Mm -hmm. long. That's what. That's the kind of tools we want. Those are the kind. That's the kind of kit we're
0: looking for. Let's talk a little about Thailand. Um, what is so special about the birding in that country?
1: Well, it's actually the diversity, Nate. You know, if you look at Thailand, it stretches through quite a few degrees of latitude. I'm just going to pull up a map here quickly. So I can look
0: at it. <laughs> I've asked listeners to imagine a map of Thailand. It's long north to south.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if most of the listeners know exactly uh, where Thailand is or what it looks like, but it is a very long, extended country. It's adjacent to Laos and Cambodia on the eastern side and Myanmar on the west and and Malaysia in the south. The long, skinny bit of most people think is Malaysia is almost more Thailand than it is Malaysia. Mm -hmm. So it extends well south, very, very close to the equator, and in the north it'll, it'll get up to very, very close to 16 degrees north. So it's mm-hmm. a long, extended stretch of land. In the north you've got a bunch of mountains, which are very typical of the, the Asian montane avifauna uh, that you get in the Himalayas. It's not the Himalayas. But it has many, many groups that are similar, so fantastic groups of dazzling sunbirds, we can expect to see a whole uh, thrush of uh, laughing thrushes, uh, which are these great garrulous, giant, bulking beasts that bounce through the forest and call in crazy ways. Uh, we can look for um, pheasants, which do not please anyone in North America. Don't think about <laughs> common pheasants when you think about Asian pheasants. Yeah, They're there's some spectacular are, ones. Truly are glorious beasts, uh, and when you when you bust a gut looking for them in the forest you will ultimately appreciate that they're they're magical creatures that take a lot of finding and are are not easy to come to terms with. Um, And so our our ABA trip is going to do part of the north, part of the central area and part of the, the Thai Peninsula. So we get to visit all these different things all the way from sort of subtropical forests in the north all the way down to what would be tropical lowland forest down south. So, uh, you know, it's a great first country to visit in Asia, Thailand. It's very, very tourist friendly, uh, lovely, lovely people, delightful food. If you like a little bit of spice, if you don't, we can still make sure that folks get uh, food that suits <laughs> their palates. Right. Um, but it certainly has a unique and special cuisine that most of us do know about. Yeah. Uh, so that's very nice. And it's it's just a good, friendly, easy country with good infrastructure, lots of available tourist facilities, and we're staying in some great places. What's also really nice is with this wave of uh, photographers having uh, travelled all over Asia now. Wherever we go, there are facilities for us that make seeing the birds much easier than they were 10 years ago. So when we go when we go down to the south, we'll be spending time in purpose-built blinds which have a variety of really cool things coming into them, including college pheasant and some of the shire partridges. Mm-hmm. You know, birds you used to have to work really hard for are really not terribly difficult around these places. And you end up with uh, pretty absorbing good views of these these rather shy birds, which uh, certainly wasn't a given a few years ago. Yeah,
0: it's really great to see countries like Thailand kind of lean into their ecotourism, their their biodiversity, as something that people will want to travel to and, and really appreciate too. I mean, you've seen that all over the world. it's been it's been so cool. <laughs> it's 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 a, it's a better time for international burning than it has ever been, it feels like
1: yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right on that score. Um, I think what also makes it what makes it great is that we have both the international tourism that we're talking about as well as the fact that there's quite a lot of domestic consumption these days. Mm-hmm. And that's a real game changer for conservation. yeah, you know once local people are are visiting these places and and enjoying, them and, and suddenly there, there's a proposed development. There's a lot of resistance from those yeah. people and they, they uh, kick up a fuss. And we end up finding that uh, maybe the environmental uh, war wins a few more little battles along the way.
0: Uh, Keith Barnes is one of the co-founders of Tropical Birding. He created the itinerary for the ABA's Birding with a Camera Tour in Thailand in February of 2019. There are still some spots available for that one if you're interested. It certainly sounds great. Keith, good luck with the tour and uh, thanks for chatting with me.
1: Uh, Thanks, Nate. We're really looking forward to it. And the one thing I forgot to mention, Uh, which cannot go unmentioned, is Spoonbill Sandpiper.
0: Spoonbill Sandpiper, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Way back in episode 215, I took a question from a listener, Quinn Llewellyn of Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was getting into birding and he wanted some tips. I threw it out there for the listeners and you guys, you guys came through. So I'll share some of them with you with some of my own comments kind of liberally thrown in. I got an email from Janine Prabliski, and I am so sorry if I butchered that Janine. It's one of those really interesting Polish names with lots of consonants. She writes that range maps are your friend, which is a great piece of advice. I think it's an aspect of bird identification that novice birders tend to overlook, but being able to narrow down that big field guide into manageable chunks of birds based on where you are, is really useful, and I would also add that knowing when birds are supposed to be somewhere narrows that stuff even further, uh, which is also which is something that Anna Stalkup mentioned in an email. She suggests a localized seasonal checklist. Uh, eBird is actually a great tool for creating that sort of thing for where you live. Janine also mentions that you should know your binocular warranty, uh, which is something that I would have even overlooked. Uh, She recounts a story where she tripped on a rock and the binoculars that she was wearing were damaged. Uh, I have a similar story where I left my binoculars on the roof of my car. I was strapping my kid into a car seat in the rain and I just drove off and obviously they did not last that long on the roof. Uh, In both cases, the manufacturer made us right. Uh, Which is a really nice thing. Most binocular manufacturers have some sort of warranty at the higher end. They're often quite good. Uh, It's good to know how far they go. Thanks, Janine and Anna. A couple responses from Twitter at Adrielle999 says Go multimodal. Use lots of mediums. I suppose the plural of that is media, like field guides, apps, eBird. Take notes, read books, expand your nature study. This is all really good advice. It's amazing where you might find tools that help you learn, sometimes in places that you don't expect, sometimes not even when you're dealing with birds. I can say from personal experience, when I started to identify insects, for instance, I gained a real appreciation for how novice birders kind of acquire information because that was me. I was there with another group of, uh, another group of animals. It really broadened my view. So that's great advice. Thanks, Adriel. Also on Twitter, Yonatan Kaplan at Yoni underscore Kaplan uses the biblical rhetorical device that I originally posed this question to everybody with. He says, thou wilt not positively ID every bird thou sees, nor will thee see every bird thou hears. Thou should not be discouraged. Yes, knowing what to let go is an important part of birding. Uh, It's hard to do when you start. But you know, one of, one of my early birding mentors told me something that has always stuck with me. Uh, he said, there are three stages of birding. At the beginning, you see everything at any time of year, obviously implying that maybe you're not getting great looks at some of these things. And then after a while, after you've gained a little experience, you see exactly what you're supposed to see, exactly when you're supposed to see it. And then finally, you graduate to, you can find anything at any time of year, only this time, you're right. <laughs> We had some responses on Facebook. Ronan Okara says to get out with an organized group. People are always willing to help. This is very true. Birders are, are really good like that. It's one of the one of the things I love most about our community. Local Audubon chapters and bird clubs often do walks. Fall is a great time to do that. Sometimes they take breaks over the summer, but a lot of them are ramping back up again. She also encourages novice birders to take notes, even if it is just an e-bird. That information is really valuable. It forces you to really think about what you're seeing and why you're seeing it. So I hope those help Quinn or anyone else out there. Keep them coming listeners. This is always a topic we can return to. Thank you for those of you who submitted uh, tips. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides to birders in North America and beyond, the best way to support it is to become a member of the ABA. In addition to helping us out, you get birding and Birders Guide Magazine all year round, plus discounts to our partners like Beauty O Books and the opportunity to join us for ABA events, among other things. Learn more at aba.org join. Special shout out to Angela Calabresi of Portland, Oregon, and Brittany Liebel of Brooksville, Maine. Both joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for your support and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. In addition to being a birder, he's also an accomplished photographer. His tip? When photographing owls, make sure that the bait mice you use have little party hats on them. The owls don't care and it makes the people who are liable to yell at you about baiting owls, they're gonna smile a little bit. Technical production is by John Lowry. He acknowledges that carrying a large prime lens in the field can be tiresome. So he uses Craigslist to hire a Sherpa to haul his equipment around. Remember, it's conventional to tip $2 for every 12 inches of camera lens. Additional technical help comes from David Hartley and Greg Nies. Retro technology is really all the rage right now, and when using a daguerreotype camera, they suggest feeding your subject mealworms laced with oxycodone to get them to hold still for the two minutes it takes to make an impression on your tin type. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, or on Twitter at ABA. A lot of people are taking photos with their mobile phones these days, but if you don't have access to a spotting scope or an adapter, here's our tip. Set your camera to video and throw it at your subject. You might get a video still you can use. Questions or comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.